everybody. What's going on? It's good to see all of you again, and all of those of you who are gathered online. I'm so glad to see you. Um, if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David, and I have been on sabbatical for the last couple of weeks, and so I wanted to start by saying thank you to Gina and Brent for filling in for me. They did a great job, didn't they? It was awesome. Um, I caught most of the messages. They were really good. And uh, thanks to the board for agreeing to allow me to go away for a little while. That was really awesome. And thanks to all of you for being faithful, not just to Jesus, but also to Thrive Church and being here and hanging out and seeing the, your, uh, your extended family. I'm going to be talking about um, my sabbatical probably in the weeks to come. But today, I want to get us back to what we were talking about beforehand, which was the life of David, this man after God's heart, and trying to understand that. Uh, a little bit more. So uh, we're going to do a quick recap, because I had to do that when I was prepping for this, because I'm like, okay, where where were we, right? I mean, it's been four weeks. You know, I was just telling everyone this morning, for whatever reason, I remember every single word of my my high school alma mater song and fight song, but I don't remember what I did about three weeks ago. I don't, I don't know why that is, I just, it just is. And so I had to do a quick recap, and so let's do this together. I think this will be helpful, <clears throat> because when we started talking about the life of, of King David, uh, we started with a man named Samuel, actually, um, who has this unique role in the history of Israel. He was the last of the Old Testament judges, but he was also the first to occupy the role of prophet in a new monarchy, a new system of government. He's very important to that transition. In fact, it, it's my opinion that the only other person in history that was as equally important was John the Baptist, who was last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets. They had two men who had uh, this kind of transitional role for all of Israel. And a uh, fascinating uh, study of Samuel. Someday we'll, we'll just study Samuel. Um, but one of his first tasks was to anoint the first king of Israel. Israel asks for a king. And, um, and Samuel says, okay, we're going to go do that. And so he finds a man named Saul. He's a good-looking brother. He's head and shoulders above everyone else, so he's kind of tall. Uh, he proves to himself to be a relatively decent military commander, although he's a bit impetuous. Uh, he gets himself into trouble with God, specifically, on a number of occasions. And we talked about this at length um, several weeks ago, and you might remember that we have this little diagram here. Because the problem with Saul is that he only got half of this right. See, when, when, our, when our hearts and our actions are in alignment with one another, that's what we call authenticity. And he was authentic to himself. I mean, Saul really was. And, and to be fair to Saul, and this is the thing you have to remember, from a strictly human leadership standpoint, Saul made the right call. He would have done what most of us would have done in that same set of circumstances. The problem was it wasn't what God had asked him to do or told him to do. And so you've got the other part of this diagram, which is bringing your heart into agreement with what God said. Does this make sense? And this whole thing is what we call alignment. And this is where Saul kind of blows it. He makes a great leadership decision, 
but it wasn't the one that God had required him to do, that asked, asked him, to, and made it clear. That's the other thing. See, sometimes, sometimes, if you're like me, it's like, well, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do here, right? Uh-uh. No. Saul knew what was required of him because Samuel told him. So we've got some misalignment. So now, what does God do? God searches for somebody who is aligned, who is after his own heart. And you might recall that this phrase has been used on a number of occasions by various preachers around the world to mean all sorts of different things. But what we know is that this is an idiom that was used throughout the ancient Near East. It's not just a Hebrew phrase. It's, it occurs in other literature from the time period, and it simply means that he was loyal. God was looking for someone who was loyal to him, someone who was aligned with his heart. Does this make sense? And all of a sudden now, we have a very different perspective on David. Sometimes I think we, we believe that David is some kind of super spiritual sort of guy. And yeah, I mean, he was. He, he, he was after God. But at the same time, he was a horrible father. Really bad. We're going to see that in a few weeks, by the way. And so he wasn't a saint, but he was loyal to God all through his entire life. And what I really appreciate about David, and again, we'll see this in a few weeks, is the fact that he's so loyal to God that even when he makes a mistake, he owns it. How many of us can say the same thing? And that's what God is after, is this alignment piece, is that when our hearts and our actions are aligned with what his heart, what his word said, that's what he's after. And so he looks for a person after his own somebody who is loyal to him. And he found him in, of course, a shepherd boy named David. He was secretly anointed the next king. He enters King Saul's service. He defeats Goliath, rather dramatically, I might add. <clears throat> He's best friends with the king's son. And oh yeah, by the way, he married the king's daughter. So, I mean, you want to talk about a hero narrative. He even gets the girl, right? I mean, oh my gosh. Slays the, slays the monster. Best friends, Gets the girl. Gets the whole nine yards. But with Saul, there's this mounting jealousy. And Saul has murder in his heart. He's going after David. He's even the guy's son-in-law. Some of you in-laws. Well, you're giggling already. You know what I'm talking about, right? But, but this, is, this is where where we find ourselves in the story. That's where we kind of left things. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. I want to pick up part of the story again today. So if you have a Bible, you might want to flip there. If you have a Bible app, you might want to punch it in. 1 Samuel chapter 19. So after a series of assassination attempts, legit, uh, David goes on the run. And why not? You know, I would probably too at that point. But interestingly enough, he still demonstrates consistent loyalty to God through all of this. You see, God anointed him as king, and since he anointed him as king, David is very content to wait for God to give him the throne. Does this make sense? I mean, how many of you would have that kind of patience? You know, I'm anointed king, let's go. And let's, let's, let's get going, get on with this. Well, David wasn't like that. He figured that, um, that God would put him on the throne when it was his time. It's astonishing restraint. It's just that loyalty factor. It's exactly what God was, was looking for. And so during this time period when he's trying to escape Saul, 
we find that David is being developed as a leader, uh, not just a military leader, but also a leader of, of a nation, of groups of people. Probably should preach on that again someday. That's a good one. But let's pick up the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 19. I'm going to begin with verse 18. I want you to see this little story. Very, very interesting. Here we go. So, 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 18. Here it is. When David had fled and made his escape, remember he's on the run because Saul's got murder in his heart, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He's complaining a little bit. And, and rightly so, okay? He's not, not happy. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. So he met him in one place, they went to another, okay? So David's on the run, this makes sense. Verse 19, word came to Saul. David is at Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Well, now that's interesting. So here, here we have this scene. They're in church and a bunch of soldiers come in to the worship service and they see what's going on. There's Samuel with David and a bunch of prophets doing the, the prophet thing. And what do they do? They start doing the prophet thing too. Can you imagine what that scene looked like? <clears throat> and I, I mean, this, this whole thing begins to make sense because David's looking for counsel. And so what does Samuel do? Samuel goes to God, essentially, and so they're in this service. The prophets are speaking on behalf of God. The soldiers show up, and what happens? They begin speaking for God too. Spirit of God hits them. <clears throat> By the way, the thing to remember, too, is that in this particular moment, this is no longer a family squabble. This is not a domestic issue. This is open hostility between Saul and his son-in-law. He's sending soldiers now. Up until this point, he was very content to try to do things you know, kind of in the shadows, a little bit of intrigue, that type of thing. Court politics, now it's open hostility. He sends men to go get him. So they went to capture him. Something strange happens. Now, let's... First of all, let's get some terms straight. First of all, prophecy is a noun. Prophesying is a verb, okay? And then what it typically means in Old Testament is that God is going to, uh, or uh, it's speaking for God, but it usually describes what God is going to do most of the time in the future. But prophecy always bring us, brings us back to God. And so when you are prophesying, at least in the Old Testament, you're talking about what God is going to do, what God says to his people, okay? So let's get the term straight. Prophesying is the verb. Prophecy is the actual. For some reason, we don't like using the word prophesying these days. Most people will um, <clears throat> speak prophetically, right? So we just take the noun, turn it into an adjective, and some of you are going, oh, all of that language art stuff when I was in school makes sense now. Yes, it's important. <clears throat> this is why we teach it. Now, please remember, every time we open the Bible, we're tourists, remember? There are customs and there are things that are happening within the text that are not common in our current, current culture. 
And so sometimes we've got to hit the pause button and say, okay, what's happening here? Let's understand what's going on. And, and I want to talk about this idea of prophesying, at least in the Old Testament sense of the word. And I'm going to tell you right up front that I reserve the right to learn something new later, okay? Because I hold on to this stuff rather loosely. This is my understanding of prophesying as of today, which is August the 29th, 2021. But I reserve the right to actually learn something new in the future. But as I understand it, when we talk about <clears throat> prophets who are prophesying, there's, um, there's an element to this word that we got to pay attention to. It seems to be kind of a, a catch-all term that describes um, prophets who are communicating from God, but it is often ecstatic. It is often um, highly emotional, it is often dramatic and loud. And, and we see that happening here to a certain extent, but there are other places in the Old Testament when it talks about prophesying as being this kind of, it almost feels chaotic. It isn't, but it kind of feels that way. Um, that's not always the case, but it's very common to see that type of worship, that type of expression, when the Old Testament writer is talking about prophets prophesying, okay? I, I want to be clear about this. In modern times, um, we see this in um, what we often call revivals. Not always, but very often. So back in the Great Awakening, <clears throat> um, what, end of the 1700s, um, early part of the 1800s, the writings of Jonathan Edwards mentioned a similar set of emotional outbursts. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards. Um, I had to read one, I don't know when, it was probably college or something. Um, Jonathan Edwards was your classic sort of New England congregationalist preacher. He would very often speak for two hours. I think I'd be screaming too after two hours, right? But what would happen is in the middle of his, um, his preaching, there would be shrieks, there would be cries out because people were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Really interesting stuff. The great reformer John Wesley, um, he often talked about this happening. In fact, there's a, a set of letters um, between himself and a man named George Whitfield, who was one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening. And they just both described seeing this phenomenon on, one was in England, one was here in the United States, and they were seeing the same thing. As they were preaching, there would be these, these, these outbursts, you know, crying out, you know, people experiencing something dramatic. And it makes sense, I think, because you have creation, a created being, encountering their creator. There has to be something deep inside of us that would leap out. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're, maybe you're, maybe you're in, in worship, maybe you're singing, and you just feel something? There's something in your heart, something that's going on, you just feel it. There's, there's something there. You can't explain it. And, and it, for me, it always chokes me up, and I get tears in my eyes. I can't stand that, but that's what happens to me. Yours might be different. That's okay. But the point is, is that when the creation encounters the creator, there is very often a deep resonance that occurs and it comes out in an emotional expression somehow, some way. 
And that's what we see when prophets prophesying, when we see this ecstatic sort of, of uh, outburst, I guess is what I would call it. But it often, we often respond very dramatically to that. But here's the thing, and, and this is what I want you to remember. Don't be scared of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. C.S. Lewis observed very eloquently that God is not safe, but he's good. And so if you experience some type of that emotion and you're, you're like, oh man, what is this going on? It's okay. He's good. And it's okay for you to have some type of of reaction, some type of response to him, and it might be emotional. It's okay, don't be afraid. We're gonna love you no matter what you do. Okay? Keep that in mind. So when we talk about prophets prophesying, now this is gonna make a whole lot more sense here in a moment, okay? So let's go back to 1 Samuel. I want you to see this. Saul was told about all of this, okay? So he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is, this is crazy, right? So Saul keeps sending men, and they keep falling under the, the power of the Spirit, and they begin prophesying. Okay, so what's a, what's a king to do? What's a murder-filled king to do in these kinds of moments? Well, here it is. So Saul went to Nahath at Ramah. Don't send soldiers to do what a king's supposed to do, right? If you're going to go murder someone, you might gotta go do it yourself. But the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence and he lay naked all that day, all that night. Now here's the deal. Okay, I'm just going to say this up front. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to. I've been in trouble before. I'll be in trouble again. It's all right. Look, I'm still going to love you, but nobody wants to see you nookie. Okay, so you know, do your favor, keep clothes on, even if you got an emotional response to the Lord. All right, now let's let's be clear what's happening here because I think I think this is an important um, piece, and I think it demonstrates some of the uh, the weight of what's happening in Israel. You have the the king who God has essentially rejected <clears throat> in the presence of the king that God has has chosen. And so he strips off his garments. And in ancient Israel, very often, the garment was a symbol of power and authority. And so here Saul is taking all of, all of that off. This is God humbling Saul. Let's be clear about that. This is a, a sign of, of God allowing Saul to understand who he is in light of all of this. There's a, a, a psalm, I wish I could remember what it is, but it's, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return, you know, back to God. And there's a humility here that I think God is trying to communicate to Saul. And so he lays there, stretched out before the Lord for a long period of time, all day and all night. Now, some of you have experienced... Um, circumstances or an event where you have been laid out before the Lord. I know, because some of you have told me this. It's not common in what we do here in the Church of God, but, but it, it has happened. And, and there's that moment where, where the creation is in front of the Creator and it completely overwhelms um, you as a person. Again, it, it sounds scary, but it's not. It's good. And here we have an example of that 
And on top of it, we have this layer of politics that are going on as well. But God is humbling Saul to make a, a particular point. Now, let's just be honest. This is a really weird story, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is odd. I puzzled over this for a few days. I mean, if you, if you kind of work your way through this, you know, Saul, and all his ill intentions, he sends three groups of soldiers to arrest David. Three times. And he sets off to do it himself. And he's on the way. He is not even to the church. And he starts prophesying. The Spirit of God comes upon him. You can't tell me that, that God's not up to something when that happens. All of the other soldiers arrive on the scene and then it happens. Saul's not even there yet. He's on the road and he's already experiencing the power of God. And then Saul is humbled before God and he spends that full day and night under the power of the Spirit. Very strange. But here's the tension, and this is the thing that I, that I, I believe is, is really easy to gloss over. And I, and I think we we got to pause and, and talk about this. For the next 10 chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul still hunts David. 10 chapters. Despite this dramatic experience that Saul has with the Spirit of God, it doesn't change his heart. Let that sink in. Saul is encountering the Spirit of God on the road to the assembly. He is laid bare before his God, humbled. God is trying to communicate something to him. And his heart is unchanged. Because he just continues the hunt for 10 chapters. Again, let that sink in. It's interesting that the power of God often changes people. I mean, we see this throughout the, the Gospels, right? I mean, Jesus shows up and does a healing and, and gains some followers. I mean, because like, oh my goodness, what, what's happening here? We see this time and time again. Not always, though. Not always. You know what comes to mind are the 10 lepers. Remember, there's 10 lepers there, and Jesus heals them, and they go off, and they do what Jesus told them, but how many return to say thank you? One. One came back with his heart changed enough to say, thank you for doing this for me. Just one. And so I, I want to suggest something to you. Now, if you've got a journal, you might want to write this one down because uh, I think this is something you probably ought to spend some time thinking about. So if you've, if you've got a place to write this down, you've got a pen, um, keep this in mind. This is the thing I want you to, to ruminate on over the next, I don't know, few days. The power of God changes circumstances, but it's the presence of God that changes the heart. There is no question about it. When the power of God shows up, it will change circumstances. Absolutely, unequivocally, that happens. We see this over and over and over again. Paul's, um, uh, Saul's circumstances are changed. He is stripped bare. 
He is humbled. He is the king of Israel, and he is, and he is humbled in that moment. That changes the circumstances. But it's the presence of God that actually changes the heart. And fortunately for us, Jesus actually illustrates this in a rather dramatic way. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Let me put it up on the screen. Let's read it to you, and, and you, can, you can see what I'm talking about. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this major block of teaching, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Huh. Interesting. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now there's a certain amount of hyperbole that's going on here. Jesus was really good at that, but I think you get the point. Because here's the question. How do you get to know someone? You hang out with them. You are in their presence. How do you get to know somebody if you don't spend time with them? You didn't marry your spouse just on a whim. You got to know them. Some of you took a long time doing it. Some of you took some detours along the way. But the point is, is how do you get to know someone? You spend time with them. How do you get to know God? You be in his presence. You be in the presence of God. That's how we make that kind of connection. Now, I want the power of God. I, I want that. I, I want to see God do what only God can do. I want to see lame people walk. I want to see blind people see. I want to see life restored to, to limb and bodies, and I want to see all of that. Because it's such a powerful thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to be involved with God when he is up to something. I want to see that type of power reinfused, not just the church, but just in my own life. I, w- I want that. And, and I think that that follows suit with, with what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue the gifts of the Spirit. There is something dramatic about being a Christian and being a part of God's enterprise, his project here on, on, on earth to be part of this thing that we call the kingdom. I want to see that kind of power. And let's be honest, so do you. You want to see that as well. You want to see God move and you want to be a part of that move of God. I think there's something in all of us that we want all of it. And I believe, frankly, that we're on the brink, not just at Thrive Church, but just nationwide. We're on the brink of some kind of revival and oh my gosh, don't we need it. Have you seen the news? If, if God's going to move, now is the time that we desperately need to see God move. I'm desperate for the power of God to, to come. To give us some hope again. I'm tired of conversations about viruses and vaccines and the politicizing of everything. I'm, I'm tired of death and destruction. I, I want to see the kingdom flourish. I want to see people changed. But given what, what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7, what do you think is most important? Is it the power that gets demonstrated through us or is it the fact that he knows us? Yeah. 
It's the presence of God that becomes the important piece of it. And I, I still maintain this idea that you can't have the power without the presence, by the way. Not in any real sense. Not in any sustain, sustained type of, of, of an idea. You, you, you have to have the presence of God in order to have the power of God. Knowing him, relating to him, listening to what he says and responding to it, that's when you get the marching orders. That's when you begin to understand that there is power here too. It isn't just about coming to church on Sunday and feeling good, although I'm glad that you do. I want you to. I want you to feel like you've connected not only with God, but with other people who love Jesus just like you do and want to journey with you. That's why we're part of the family of God. And some of you are singing the song in your head right now because you grew up in the church of God. That's why we're, we're part of this. I want to see both and, not either or. I want to see the presence of God develop into the power of God in your life, in the life of this church. It's my hope. Revival will come, I believe, when we become people of presence. You spend time in the presence of God so you can carry that presence somewhere else and then watch what happens. I think that's when the amazing things begin to occur. Now, be honest. In your heart, you're kind of hoping for that, aren't you? I know I am. I think God is up to something. I, in fact, I, I know he is. Yes, I want to see circumstances changed. But I want to see each one of you with a changed heart. In fact, there's this part of me that's, that thinks that it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to actually go do the things that God asks us to do without a changed heart. I, I don't know about you, but it is not in my nature to go seek out um, people who are hurting, who are disadvantaged. I'm not very good at that. In fact, um, when I'm driving down the street and I see them on the corners with the signs in their hand, I'm a bit skeptical. Unless it's, you know, I'm confronted with it. And th those are the moments where I'm like, God, I think I need a changed heart. Now, I want to be wise. Don't get me wrong. I want to be wise about those things. But if we're actually ex expecting ourselves to just naturally pursue the benefit of the others, I think as a race, we're not so good at that. And so we need a changed heart. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to have a changed heart. Now, your heart might not be drawn towards the homeless. Your heart might be drawn towards something else. That's okay. We need everybody. But it all starts with a changed heart. Every last bit of it. You want to see the power? Get into the presence. You want to see changed circumstances? Change the heart. That's what we're after. I don't know what that means for you. I know that for me, it means that I need to spend more time carving out more time to be not only with God, but to be with God's people. 
I don't know how else to do it. And I know you're busy. And I know the pandemic was supposed to give us more time. <laughs> right? It didn't. It made us busier than ever, didn't it? But what would it be like if you spent three more minutes with God each day? Double dog dare you to find out. Three minutes. Five minutes. I don't know. What would that be like? I think what happens is that when we begin to encounter the Spirit of God, there's this part of us that wants more. I know that on Sundays, for quite some time, I've been feeling the presence of God here. And I'm not satisfied with it here. I want it at home too. That's a good thing. So my challenge for you this week and all the subsequent weeks is to try to find just three minutes more with God. Five if you can do it. Fifteen? Oh, wow. But the point is, is try to... to and you can do this any number of ways. Let, let me give you one example. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go off script here, which is quite funny because my watch is broken. I can't, I don't know what time it is, so I don't know if I need to cut off for lunch. It's all right. Um, but here's one way that you can do things, uh, and I heard another pastor talk about this. I thought this was, was good, something that Lisa and I have been trying, is that before I go to sleep, I want to turn my affection towards God. Now, what does that mean? It took me a while to figure that one out. But it literally means to acknowledge the fact that God was with you that day to thank him for that. You got a bed to sleep in. That's good news. You're alive and you're healthy. And God loves you. And to simply acknowledge that is to turn your affection towards God. And here's the thing. I found myself sleeping a little bit better. And, and it doesn't matter how old you are. You can do that. You know, we th you, some of you young people think that I'm just talking to the adults here. I'm not. I'm talking to you too. What's affection mean? That's eh, all right. Affection means that you put the video game down for a little bit. <laughs> and just to say, hey, God, thanks for giving me parents who love me. Little things like that. I think God loves that stuff. I really do. So however you choose to do it, it's up to you. If you want ideas, I got plenty. We can talk afterwards. Let's pray. Hey, God, you're in the house tonight. And we want to turn our affection towards you when we go to sleep. The <laughs> fact of the matter is, you're in the house today, right now, sitting next to us. And, and the beautiful thing is, is that Somehow, some way, um, as we're singing, as we're conversing, as we're doing, you know, our worship experience, you may visit some of us. And you might give some gifts along the way, and that would be really cool, because we like to see that. But in my heart, Lord, my prayer is that as we sing, as we worship, we would feel something going on inside of us that we would not settle for just a nice worship service, but we would truly understand 
what it means to hunger and thirst for you. I don't know what that means, but I want to find out. So Holy Spirit, we ask you for more. Not for the ecstatic experiences, but because we want to know what it means to have you present and to have our hearts changed. Because that's where the kingdom comes from. And we didn't decide to come here and be together just to feel good, although that's a nice benefit. We came here to learn from you, to experience you, to share with others the experiences they've had with you. So Holy Spirit, come. You are so welcome here. And we want to meet with you again today. For those of you who might need some ministering, um, I'm going to just I'm going to go off to, to my right, your left. I'm, I'm just going to be over here. I don't know what it is that you need. Maybe you just need someone to say, God's still on the throne. I could do that. Maybe you need a little of that confidence. You can borrow mine. Maybe there's something that's bothering you, and a relational thing. And you need the power of the Spirit to do that Holy Spirit thing. Hey, let's talk to him about that together. Don't do that one alone. You can, but I'll join you. Maybe it's a physical ache or pain. There's just something that you are wrestling with and you're tired of it. I got it. Let's ask the Holy Spirit about that one too. And I know that it might take a little bit of courage to get up out of the, the seat and, oh my goodness, you may have to walk around the backside of the lobby to come and talk to me, whatever. I, you know what? Nobody's paying attention to that because they want you to be free. And they want you to be healed. And they want you to live the fullness of the life that God has in mind for you. So, it's available. I'm happy to pray for you. But as we're singing the song, you have an opportunity to do some real business with God, to chase after his presence, to try to align yourself with his heart, to bring your authenticity into alignment with whatever it is that he's speaking over you. Oh God, I just pray your blessing, the blessing of your presence on these people today, that it wouldn't just end here when we're done with service, that you would just walk with them out of here, and they would be a people of presence, and it would just fill them, and it would spill over onto everyone else around them. God, thanks for choosing us to be a part of this. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.